Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. I am Tyler Donahue. We have a bunch to get to from our coverage the last few days. We were back in Beaver Stadium on Sunday for several hours. We heard from James Franklin, all three coordinators for the Penn State staff, a bunch of assistant coaches, a ton of players out there as well. We packed a lot of coverage into the weekend at Lions247.com. We're going to go over some of that with Daniel Gallen, Mark Brennan momentarily. We've also seen another Penn State practice, or at least a portion of a Penn State practice, since we had our last podcast. So we'll share some uh, takeaways from that experience as well. But we begin this episode by bringing back an old friend, and I know a favorite of our listeners, certainly a favorite of the show's host as well. It's Josh Pate. You know him from all across the 24-7 Sports Network. Late kick with Josh Pate. Josh, always happy to have you on board, but extra excited when we've actually got football on the field to talk about. Yeah, man. Now, I was up there in spring. I remember the vibe up there. So now the vibe in fall, probably a little more urgency, but how does it feel around the program right now? It feels like this team is determined to be playing in Indianapolis that first Saturday of December and and beyond that in the college football playoff. And they're not going to take no for an answer. And I, I feel like they're a little less apologetic about that stance than perhaps we've seen in the past, Josh. And the urgency is certainly there just four practices into fall camp thus far. But you're uh, just a few weeks away from getting one-on-one with James Franklin again. You had him out in Indianapolis during Big Ten media days. Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallon were out there covering it from a Penn State perspective. But a little bit of separation from when you spoke to James here in Happy Valley back in early April versus doing it uh, just a couple of weeks before preseason camp starts. So what did you take away from sitting down with the 10th-year Nittany Lions coach? I don't think there was another coach I spoke to at SEC or Big Ten media days And we got them all. I don't think there was another coach I spoke to that seemed more ready to get to fall camp, that seemed more ready to get to the season. Um, The reason's obvious, but from a national perspective on our show, when I try and spell that out, it's like Nick Saban's won titles before. Kirby Smart now has won titles. So when you're around those guys, they're excited to get to fall camp, but it's almost like a calm excited. James Franklin is is not nearly as calm. I'm not saying he's yelling in your face, but you can tell that guy has known really since last season ended and since they got through spring relatively injury-free and nothing catastrophic's happened, uh, they've known they've got a squad this year. I think one of the biggest points of sort of separation between people closer to the Penn State program and nationally is nationally people think there's a big two in the Big Ten this year, and I know why they think that. You get more close to the Penn State program, they don't believe in Big Two. They believe in Big Three. And then if anyone else wants to come along, they can come along. That's the attitude James Franklin had. He doesn't have to say that, by the way. It's just in the confidence that's exuded. And it's also because I think they know there is no glaring weakness on this roster, which, you know, in years past, we've seen teams that have elite units. But there's glaring roster holes that keep them from ultimately achieving at the highest level. I don't think Penn State really has that this year. Therefore, I think rightfully so, they believe they can achieve at highest level. And that's that's the that's the attitude Franklin has in both times I've been around him over the past few months. And one thing that Franklin reiterated to us on Sunday during his opening press conference of this preseason camp was they feel like for the first time in his decade here with the program, they can truly point to a three deep at just about every position, if not a two and a half deep, which he feels really good about. And we talked a lot about here on our show, Josh, and you've got a front and center with a couple of the coordinators, but 
just about where this staff has gone in 2023. Mike Yurcich, year three as, as an offensive coordinator. They've got Manny Diaz. People weren't sure if he'd be a head coach again by the time this season rolled around. He's in year two as the defensive coordinator. What do you think about those two guys that James Franklin has in the foxhole this year and what that might mean for his CEO role and the success of this team? Yeah, I extended out to J1 Sider, too. The reason I include yeah. him is because those are guys, especially Diaz and Sider, those are guys where you have, in my mind, elite coaches in their respective lanes with elite talent. I had crumbs on my face. My bad. Um, you, you, I know Michigan is going to get a lot of play for the one-two running back combo they have, which is well-earned. But what you have there at Penn State in the tailback room is not to be dismissed either. And so Jaywan Sider, when I talked to him in the spring, if he wanted to, he couldn't have hidden the smile on his face and knowing what he has in that room. And also, here's, here's the huge benefit. And I know, again, I'm not telling Penn State fans maybe something they don't already know, but if, you, if you've got Drew Aller, even if he ends up being everything you want him to be, it's not realistic to expect him to be that right out of the gate. The good news is you don't have to have him be that right out of the gate. If they were to play West Virginia and he goes 15 for 19, Let's just say that would be a very, very conservative run-heavy approach for them offensively. But let's say even he goes 15 for 19. But completion percentage is really high, no picks. And then Allen and Singleton combined for 332 yards on the ground and three touchdowns. They can afford to win that way, especially then you switch it over to Manny Diaz when you consider the caliber coach he is, the caliber of depth, like you just talked about, that he has, and the caliber of frontline star power that he has. It is... I, I agree with him. It's a position they haven't been in. It's a position I don't think that's appreciated by folks coast to coast because in this time of year, Tyler, as you well know, it's preview magazine season. So everyone bases their predictions on preview magazines and really that you base your prediction on a depth chart. But people don't really look at depth charts. They say they do. They're looking at frontline starters. That's what they're looking at. And no one ever has a bunch of red Sharpie lines through their starting rotation in August because no one's gotten hurt. But in October, November, that stuff starts to pile up. And I don't care how far you go back. You go back as long as you want to. You look at those playoffs, conference title games, national title games. It's depth that's winning teams championships. It's frontline talent. And then it's, it's where did you not have catastrophic failure because of attrition? That's really what it comes down to. And they've got that now. And so when you have a guy like Manny Diaz able to work with that, it's a huge deal. Just in time for you to join our show, Josh, you put out your season predictions for Penn State. I know that there was a, a big video clip that we shared. And I know the Lions 24-7 uh, account shared with you laying it out. And you can do that right here on the show. I won't spoil your pick. You can do that yourself. But where do you see them landing in the regular season? And what's your rationale for that? Yeah, so we always like to do best case, worst case, most likely. And I think for the first time, I said the best case for a Penn State team is an undefeated season. I don't think I've said that before. Um, you can fact check me on it, but I don't think I have. So got a lot of pushback on that for obvious reasons. But I don't even think I struggled all that much with it. If you're going to have two games where you're a definite point spread underdog and one of them's not definite, Michigan's a long way away right now, and that's a field goal game. So the, the really, really the only one you're a guaranteed point spread dog in is at Ohio State. Tyler, uh, in the best case of worlds, people are kidding me if they don't see a solid performance out of Drew Aller. They're kidding me if they don't see Ohio State's quarterback position not quite fulfilling expectation. And if that happens, that's a bad that's a bad matchup against Penn State's defense. So, so there's absolutely a world where they go in there and beat them. 
Therefore, there's a world where they go 12 and 0. I thought eight and four was the worst case for them, which includes losses to Penn State or Michigan, Ohio State. And it also includes the offense not taking the leap. And if they don't take the leap, that means Penn State doesn't elevate to tier one. And if you don't elevate to tier one, that means the Minnesota games in play, the Iowa games in play, stuff we've seen in the past, just closer games than you're comfortable with. I landed at 11 and one, though. That was my record prediction for them because I think it's that good a team. I think it's that deep a team. I think that they either match up well in their biggest road game or they've got all the intangible factors on their side in their biggest home game. So I think it's very reasonable to expect them to split uh, in the most likely scenario, one of those big two. And Tyler, I do believe they've elevated another tier. And that's why I don't have them losing another game. And that's not something I've said in years past. So that's where the difference is. That depth that we're talking about, that's where the difference is for me. And I also love that they don't play Ohio State or Michigan in week one, two, or three. So they get to wait on them a little while. And by that time, the offense should have given us a pretty good idea of what to expect. Um, you mentioned some pushback from you saying that this team's capable of, of running the table in the regular season. When you hear that pushback, and by the way, I can't believe there's a different of, of opinions on college football topics right now in August. But when you heard that pushback, what are the reasons that people throw in your face about why they feel like Penn State is some kind of a farce paper contender here in August? Um, it's not really deep intellectually. I know that shocks you, but <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of can't when they should just be using haven't that's that those two are not interchangeable, even though people think they are. So it's James Franklin can't win the big 10, even though he already has, but that's still what I get thrown at me. They can't beat Michigan. They can't beat Ohio state. You push back on that and there's not really anything deep and philosophical thrown in your face. It's just, well, we think they can't. And it's, it's indicative of a world where um, I, I really think there's a group of people out there in college football in general that quite literally believe until they see something happen, that thing is impossible. It was, it, I always go back to the Roger Bannister four-minute mile thing. Forever, society thought the four-minute mile was impossible. The sub-four-minute mile was impossible. So then Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute barrier. And then a whole bunch of other people broke the four-minute barrier. And it, it, it really offers a glimpse into the human psyche and how powerful thinking something can't be done is. And then all of a sudden, once you say, whoa, you mean this is possible? Maybe I can do it. And then, and then a bunch of people go do it. Not that it's easy, but sometimes all people have to see is that it can be done. Well, when it comes to believing in college football programs or believing in college football teams, I don't have to go too far, Tyler. So I grew up in Georgia. I'm in Nashville right now. So I'm in SEC country. Kirby Smart is the toast of college football today. There are people coronating him, the new king of this sport, who not, not more than 36 or 48 months ago were saying he can't win the big one. He can't beat Nick Saban. He can't win a championship. And then guess what? He won one. There was no, there was no Berlin Wall. There was no barrier in the way. It's just hard to do. And then he put together the right team and the right set of circumstances fell into place and he won one. Then he won another one. That's the same way it could happen at Penn State. They could go on a string over the next seven years, uh, the likes of which the program's never seen before. Same head coach, same formula, same support staff behind the scenes, and people will look at it and say, how is this possible? If it's happening now, why didn't it happen years earlier? It's just fractions of inches. It's just small degrees of change here and there at a program like Penn State. That's the difference. And so, listen, 
if I were to give that answer to one of these folks in my DMs, they would have tuned out three and a half minutes ago. So I appreciate <laughs> you even keeping your eyes open. Well, I want to ask you this because I want to hear your reasoning when you think about why it might not work out for Penn State. What gives you the pause and then not being able to get to Indy or get to that college football playoff contention, maybe landing a little bit closer to that worst case scenario? What are what's what's kind of the the concern, the fear when you look at this program where maybe there is a little bit of a dip versus the expectation? Yeah. So worst case always includes it usually includes injury. Let me put it that way. Um it would involve Drew Aller just being pretty good as a quarterback and not necessarily elevating to the talent level that, that we all know he has or we think we know he has. It would involve the receiver room both not living up to expectation and, and potential, but also being hit with injury themselves. So you become a one-dimensional offense. The interior run defense doesn't hold up against teams like Michigan late in the year. And so also that includes not being a tier better and therefore being in dogfight games against Illinois or against uh, Minnesota, teams like that. All that worst case, if that were to come together, several of those games would be in play. And in the worst case, you don't win the one possession games and you're minus three turnovers against some team you're supposed to beat by double digits. And we have a repeat of the Illinois game a couple of years ago. Well, that, oh, man, no one wants to hear about that one right now. But, <laughs> uh, but, but okay, let's let now that we've kind of laid out that, let's get people away from the ledge now, Josh. You obviously think they're going to enter that next tier. You've got them at 11 wins in 12 games. That's going to put them in the conversation. That might get them to Indy. Um, tell me this. What gave you the confidence to, to kind of push your money in that direction versus laying in the middle and saying they're going to be a 10 and 2 squad? Uh, an undeniable energy when I was up there in spring. Uh, there is. I don't know how to explain this to people. You just kind of have to see it when you're in, when you're in these facilities, when you're around staffs. Um, if you're around one of them, you may not have basis for comparison, but I'm around them all the time. And I'm around all the big programs, the, the best in the business right now. I'm blessed enough to be able to see behind the scenes. So when I went to Penn state, I'd never been up there before in that capacity. And it feels a lot like what those other places feel like. They just don't have the trophy case that those other places have. But that's what a process is all about. You're not there overnight. Those places didn't get there overnight. And so when I felt that in the spring, that doesn't mean anything. It's it's like having a great looking kitchen does not guarantee a good meal. But you kind of have to have some things in the kitchen before you could ever make a good meal. So that's how I felt about them in the spring. Um, We got to watch full practice when we were up there. Got to feel that. Got to see a lot of the players. They didn't have a guy like Dante Cephas on campus yet, but what we could see, loved what I saw. Uh, there's a competitiveness. There's an energy. I think line of scrimmage talent is where it needs to be. Like everyone focuses on Olu. I think their offensive line, period, can just be a really, really good unit, which probably would surprise some people, even though it shouldn't surprise a lot of people. Um, and then they avoided major injury in the spring. They... At that point, I I know people change their predictions a lot over the summer. I just start to think in the summer about maybe how you match up. In the spring, you're in a bubble. In the summer, you got some time to think. And so I think about different scenarios, play it out in my head, how it could go in the fall. And, you know, a lot of it is out of your control. Like like Penn State's chances in the Ohio State game, they control. Obviously, they'd tell you they control it. But there's, there's things going on in Columbus, Ohio right now that based on the way they pan out could greatly benefit or greatly hurt you and your chances to win. But the more I thought about what's most likely, the, the more I thought about the fact that they got a really good shot in that game. And if they don't, 
understand what that does in college football. We're still in a 14 playoff era. So in college football, you go lose one game, you're, you're total wounded animal mode. You're total desperation back against the cliff mode the rest of the year. And if they, if they were to be unscathed and have Michigan come in there later in the season with their entire livelihood on the line, as far as their preseason expectations go, I think they're winning one of those games at least. And I think that's why they'll be right there in, in the Big Ten title picture, in the college football playoff picture. All that stuff's on the table. I would argue whether they make the Big Ten title game or not, if they run off 11-1, and one, I think they're in the playoff. Josh, you have you've mentioned it. Uh, you've, you've been face to face with a bunch of the biggest names in college football all year long uh, for the last several years. But just in the last few weeks with these conference uh, gatherings and specifically talking Big Ten, I don't know if Penn State came up much when talking to other coaches, whether it was on or off the camera. But did you pick up any kind of vibe about how Penn State's opponents, how the rest of this conference is viewing the Nittany Lions maybe as the season gets a little bit closer? Because as you said, externally, there's so much thought about this being two teams and then a gap. I'm curious if that kind of falls apart when you talk to people who are within this conference and preparing for the conference. Yes, it does. Really good question. I would not have thought about this. Yes. So here's the difference I notice: When you listen to national folks talk or when you listen to fans talk, they mention Ohio State and Michigan. All the coaches mention Penn State. Every one of them, especially if Penn State's on their schedule, Penn State is one of the first things out of their mouth. So they certainly don't view it the same way. They already take Penn State seriously, in other words. And I think it's because, of course, they've got to play them. And also, coaches don't coaches don't grade their opponents based on the jersey they're wearing. That goes into it, and there's an understanding, hey, this is Michigan, so it means something to play Michigan. But they're looking at the quality of player you have. They're looking at how difficult you are as an opponent on the field. Well, that's what they're seeing when they see Penn State. They see a tailback duo that can wear you down and also ease a quarterback into a season. They see a guy that's going to be a top 10 pick at, at tackle. They see depth defensively. They see all that. And then they also see that they have the ability to be ultra physical. They have the ability to, to take over games up front. They have the ability to lock us down and not allow us to stretch the field against them. And they've also got this quarterback that may end up being the real deal. And everyone it's just kind of like the prayer emoji around the big 10. Everyone's <laughs> hoping uh, against a Drew Aller taking that that step in progression because if you've got all the other factors at Penn State and then you have just B to B plus level quarterback play, much less if he gets up into the A minus range, it's not good for the rest of the conference because, like I said, there is not that one place that you look at Penn State and say, oh, don't worry, we'll just do this against them. Like, we'll just attack this. They don't have that. And coaches know that. I think the rest of the country will know that. You mentioned Drew. We, we've all been mentioning Drew for a while now. I'm going to take it away from him and ask you this. Any individual player or two here at Penn State that we all know pretty well in Happy Valley at this point, but you feel like they're headed into that national conversation this season? I, I think Olu Fashanu is headed into that national conversation. Everyone up there knows him. But I remember when we were up there, I was talking to their staff, and you know their, their staff was talking about how great a player he is we just want to have more people know about him, know who he is. So I sat down with him for an extended conversation. I loved him. It was funny, though. He had just come out of the shower. So he had his glasses on and his glasses kept fogging up. And I felt so bad for him because he, he didn't know that. Are, are we live or can we stop? You know, can I can I rub the glasses off? Can I defog myself? So we had to stop a couple of times so he could defog his glasses. But he's a really good dude. Um he does not struggle 
to articulate thought. And when I say articulate thought, I mean some some pretty deep thought. He's not a surface guy. Uh, there's a lot of intention behind his words. You can tell the decisions that he made to come back were were well and thoroughly vetted. Um, he was really candid about that entire process. And so if if Penn State continues to do what I think they'll do, and that is shine a spotlight on him from from a more publicity-based angle, I think Olu Fashano, especially if they're in contention this year and, and the media sphere is sort of looking for players to gravitate towards, he's tailor-made for that. Curtis Jacobs is tailor-made for that. I think um, I, I certainly I, – I'm interested to watch a guy like Nick Singleton. Nick Singleton will be one of the faces of that program. I'm interested to see how much you know people gravitate towards him when it comes to being a face of the program because those other two guys – and, and we've talked to several others, but those other two guys, yeah, man, I'd, I'd put my full endorsement on. Yeah, Olu, by the way, you may have known this, you may not. He had the highest GPA on this roster yep. heading into the summer. So, yeah, it matches up on the field, off the field. And nine career starts, Josh, let's not forget, nine career starts for a guy that a lot of folks thought would be in an NFL training camp right now. Instead, he's with Penn State, and a big part of the reason why there is optimism. Let's finish with some big picture talk, because you are the master of it, my friend. And the Big Ten Conference warrants a long look these days. Oregon and Washington are joining that incoming West Coast party, along with USC and UCLA next year. Uh, the Pac-12, the rest of the country, we'll talk about that in a second. But Big Ten expansion, we're up to 18 teams, perhaps and counting. What do you make of where the Big Ten Conference is heading come 2024 and perhaps beyond? I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, it's good for the Big Ten. I, I, I'm not a conference rooter, though. Like, I have no conference allegiance necessarily, so I just love college football. A lot of people think I have uh, allegiance to the SEC. Um, they're probably about to expand as well, so see me when they expand. I'll say the same things. I know it is what it is. I know we're headed where we're headed. You're going to get some great matchups. You're going to have frequent flyer miles like you've never had before, but you're going to have some great matchups. Um, I think people would be kidding themselves a little bit if – if they wouldn't admit we don't lose a little something in this. Now, the hope is what you gain makes up for what you lose. And I know we've never had a 20 or 30 year period where there wasn't major change in college football, uh, but I grew up in the era I grew up in. So, so my normal is my normal. And a lot of the normalcy that I've experienced in my life kind of just got thrown in the blender. And the reason that I kind of have a, you know, a long face about it, Tyler, is sometimes changes happen and they have to happen. Even the ones you don't like, they have to happen. I'm not necessarily sure any of this stuff, Big Ten otherwise. I'm not sure any of this stuff really had to happen. It just did happen. It's, it it kind of, I remember when we would have substitute teachers back in the day, the, the behavior in the classroom would be a lot different than when oh, yeah. you had your main teacher there. And college football, I think I just made up something I'm going to use on tonight's show. College football has had a substitute teacher vibe for a long time. <laughs> There's just no one there. And you can kind of, you can shoot the rubber bands, you can throw the spitballs, do whatever you want to. Uh, a real teacher will be back eventually, but you know, until she's off of maternity leave, it's just a free for all. The sub always shows up with the rolling cart with the TV on it too. And the VHS player underneath yes. it. I know exactly that kind of day you're talking about. Um, yeah. Judge. And, and, and so what the, the big 10 SEC are clearly in power positions as people are trying to consolidate what do you make of the rest of the wilderness that is the college football universe and how this is going to ultimately impact who's competing in the college football playoff and winning titles? Well, philanthropy has not been a word that's been used a lot in college football as of late. And yet, if those conferences are going to exist, if they're going to remain 
in the conversation of national college football, it will have to be for the philanthropy of the Big Ten and the SEC because we're coming up on a renegotiated playoff window. And I said it. I said it when all this stuff started to break. The big news here is not expansion. It's not realignment. Yes, that's happening right now, but that's like a fog in the morning. Once that fog lifts, I think everyone's about to look around and realize, wait, you're telling me this 12-team playoff with six auto bids, it's not forever? There's only two years on this? And then after that, everyone's got to renegotiate from scratch? That is what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you the Big Ten and the SEC, even though I hate that I'm going to say this, they would be foolish. To, to buy into the notion that everyone deserves a shot. Everyone deserves a seat at this table. No, they don't. If they believed that, Tyler, they wouldn't have made the moves they made to begin with. So they've already spoken through their actions, and I'm not blaming them. It is what it is. Uh, that's, that's a survivalist, and that's a, a very aggressive mentality. But in the wake of that, you're telling me they're about to walk to a table 12 or 18 months in negotiations from now and say, yeah, we think the Pac-12 and Conference USA – should still have opportunity to have the same seat at the table we do. There's no way they agree to that. And so I think that'll be the biggest takeaway. And a lot of folks who cheered this on, unless you're in Big Ten and SEC country, a lot of people who cheered on this, this speeding up towards a cliff will finally realize, oh, it was a cliff we were speeding up towards, and we're kind of out of this thing now. Josh, for the sake of our conversation here, let's say Penn State is right in, in that college football playoff conversation through Thanksgiving and perhaps beyond, who else do you expect to really be joining them there uh, across different conferences? Who would it surprise you? And I'll let you get your, your college football playoff picks out in late August, whenever you want to do that. But at this point with preseason camps underway across the country, who do you expect to see up there when those rankings eventually pop up come the later stages of the season? I think Ohio state and Michigan will both be there. I think Penn state will be there. Uh, Georgia, Alabama, I am, I'm very, very much a believer this year in Texas. First year, I would have predicted that. But this year in Texas, uh, I think Kansas State's got a really good team. They're going to need they're going to need plus four in one possession wins. They're going to need plus in turnover margin. Uh, I, I'm a believer in Oregon on the West Coast. I haven't made a pick yet, but that's kind of where I'm leaning on the West Coast. Don't think there's a G5 team this year. Don't necessarily think Notre Dame's at that level this year, maybe a step below. So, that's where my mind's at right now. You notice I did not mention the ACC. That's the one conference where I'm still kind of up in the air in, in not knowing whether any of those teams are playoff caliber. But then again, I don't even know who I'm going to pick to win the conference yet. So that all remains to be seen. It could change any day. Well, stay tuned to Late Kick with Josh Pate. Give our listeners the lowdown on, on where your show is found right now and what's ahead in the, in the weeks before kickoff. Yeah, it's on YouTube anywhere, really anywhere you want to get it. But on YouTube, Late Kick with Josh Pate. Any of the podcast feeds, Late Kick with Josh Pate. Um, Tyler, what we do in August is, is I lead every show with the best camp intel and whispers coast to coast that you probably haven't picked up on because you have a job during the day and you're just getting home. So we deliver that. Uh, we got predictions happening. Got a, a bunch of head coaches on the show. Got one uh, as we record coming up tonight. And so it's just college football all year. But this time of year, it's especially meaty, and we don't put anything in there that's filler. So if, if we're putting it in that show, it's stuff you need. And I've always got to ask, any plans on getting back to Happy Valley? You, you, I know you've always got a return trip uh, right down the road, but a anything lined up yet, or do we have to keep waiting? You have to keep waiting only because it takes, um, it takes cooperation, should I say, you know, we decide the Sunday of a game week where we're going normally. So my short answer is yes. I think we're absolutely going to be up there this year. 
when we're going to be up there. That's the that's the big question mark. Well, we hope to see you up here soon, Josh. Always good to have you on the podcast. Uh, be sure to follow him at Late Kick. Always good stuff on the daily. Josh, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you real soon. I appreciate it, Tyler. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. All right, let's shift gears now and get to our local crew, and that means Daniel Gallen and Mark Brennan rejoin us here on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Guys, sorry to do this to you, but you got to follow up Josh Pate. Uh, it just is what it is. He's as good as it gets, seriously, people. If you want the national take on it, on things, Josh Pate's where to go. And, you know, the other cool thing about Josh is he's got a great relationship with James Franklin and the Penn State staff, so he's been very helpful to us. Uh, when he's been able to get up here and cover games and cover spring practice. So uh, he really is as good as it gets. And I, I don't know how he keeps all that stuff kind of crammed into uh, his head, but he does an awesome job of it. Yeah, we appreciate it. And, and as I said at the top of the show, the three of us, along with Grace Brennan, uh, were out at Penn State Media Day Sunday in Beaver Stadium. Bunch of players out there on the field. Prior to that, we had James Franklin at the podium. We had all three coordinators speaking with us as well. So there's a lot to dive into. Throw into the fact that a couple hours later, we were over at a rainy Penn State practice watching the latest on-field action. And, and we have a lot to cover here. And let's begin with James Franklin, because whenever he hits the podium, we're going to discuss that. And, and, and Mark, to lead off preseason camp, you had asked about him being in year 10 and, and, and a lot of the changes and how he feels about his role. What are you picking up about James Franklin, a guy that you covered 10 years ago in this introductory press conference and saw him trying to build out this thing, coming off of where Penn State was? feels like a long time ago, I think, uh, and, and compared to where the, the things are now. What kind of a, a kind of takeaway did you have from James? You know, there are I, I, want, to, I want to state this delicately, but there are, there are times when people ask questions and the question is more about themselves than it is about the subject. And I, I, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm, I'm, I'm getting to here. When James Franklin arrived at Penn State, I had the opportunity to ask, ask the first question of him. And I'm paraphrasing myself here, but it was, you know, you're entering a job that Joe Paterno had for 45 years and Bill O'Brien had for two years. How do you view yourself? And just going back and kind of paraphrasing what he was saying, you know, he, he said he viewed it as a destination job. It was where he wanted to be. And I could have framed the question like that, but I don't like making it about my question way back when. But here on a podcast, I can make it about me because you guys don't care and our <laughs> listeners and viewers don't, don't care. We have time to fill. Uh, but that's kind of where I was getting at. You know, can you wrap your head around the fact that in this day and age, you know, you're in a job for 10 years. He's the second longest tenured coach in what is now an 18-team Big Ten. And, you know, the one thing he said is that it's kind of a sad statement. It's a vol I also mentioned it's a volatile profession, which it is, because, you know, it used to be that 10 years was like next to nothing for a lot of coaches. Um, but I, what I gathered from that, and I don't know if you guys saw the same thing, but I think there's a, a he's a traditionalist. So I think there's an element of sadness that it's not the way it used to be. But I think there's he's also he went above and beyond to say how appreciative and blessed that he is to be in this position. And I take the man at his word with that. I don't think he's still here. You know, he's had other opportunities, as, as we all know, and we, we've all capitalized on page view wise. 
but he's had other opportunities that he hasn't taken. And I really do believe this is where he wants to be. If he can have this program the way, you know, he wants it to be in the, the school uh, backing it to supporting it the way that it needs to be. And I think he's made steps and Penn state's made steps to getting there. And he said, blessed and appreciative multiple times. And I, I thought that was, you know, I, I liked what I heard from him. Uh, not that he probably judges or anybody should judge based on what I think, but I just thought he handled the question really well because there's, it, it's kind of a, you know, two parts there where things aren't the way they used to be. But if you are that coach who lasts a decade, there's something to be said for that for you and for the school that you're working at. Yeah, I, man, I, I don't want to suggest that, that, you know, James Franklin is someone who is going to go out there and, you know, spill his heart in the first day of camp. But I got the, the sense that he, he feels more secure with the entire situation, the whole scope of what Penn State Athletics and the university is doing than, than he's come across at any point um, this year. I, I think that goes for support staff, for things he's bouncing off of the administration, for the roster that he's put together, for the way they're attacking the recruiting trail, for the staff that's putting those plans in place in the recruiting trail. And it feels like he's maybe more at peace. Now, we'll see. Uh, one game into the season, we may see a completely different James Franklin or one bad practice into camp, we may see a completely different James Franklin. But it seemed like he feels like uh, I just there's a sense that that he's comfortable more than at any point when I've covered this team. And I think that's because he's checking off a lot of boxes. Daniel, I don't know if you want to chime in here, but we're always trying to read uh, James Franklin. Uh, he's a guy who's got a psychology background, so he's always probably trying to read the room as well. Uh, but what did you come out of that experience with? It was about a half hour with the head coach. Yeah, I, I think piggybacking off what Mark talked about a little bit with Franklin looking a little bit you know, back at his time and how things have changed. I think that came up when he was asked about conference realignment um, and about how, you know, it's, it's not the college football, college athletics that, you know, pretty much anyone grew up with. Um, and, you know, it's, it's different and, you know, there are going to be some challenges with it, um, but it's kind of the, the way things are right now. Um, and that was in, in response to the question about Oregon and Washington joining the big 10 um, which I believe happened Friday. So, um, but I thought overall, I thought that you know, we saw a very kind of calm, collected, confident James Franklin. Um, you know, there there wasn't really a moment where he he threw down the gauntlet for a position group like he did for the offensive line last year. Um, you know, where he said, "All right, like it's time for you guys to prove it." Um, we might have been a little bit there with the wide receivers uh, in terms of looking for someone to step up, but you know, I think that overall that. You know, he has a lot of confidence in this team, but at the same time, he understands that, you know, a football team is, is pretty fragile uh, when it comes to, you know, what can go wrong, little things that can derail a season. Um, and so he did acknowledge that there are some question marks. There are some things that, that Penn State is going to have to figure out this month before the game start against West Virginia. But I came away thinking that, you know, Franklin is, is very confident um, and, you know, really excited for this season and what this team could potentially accomplish. Quarterback battles. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, Mark. I actually see you just told me you have one more thing to chime in here with. Yeah, yeah, and I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, but sometimes I get into these stream of consciousness uh, thing, <laughs> things. We're all guilty of it on this show. Don't worry about <laughs> and, it. And lose my way. But yeah, you know, the one thing that really stood out to me is how much he um, he appreciated the people that he's worked for, the athletic directors and the presidents. And going back to what you said, Tyler, 
I think he's in a comfort zone now with with Kraft and and Dr. Bendapudi that there's a level of communication there that may not always have been there. But having said that, I also think we always have to remember where this program was when James Franklin arrived, you know? I mean, it was coming out of a very, very bad spot where communication with a football coach, the head football coach, wasn't necessarily 1A. Having the athletic department and football program survive was, was 1A. So I don't think anybody was more critical of Dave Joyner than I was for his lack of transparency. But the man did hire Bill O'Brien and he did hire uh, James Franklin. And, uh, you know, I also think there was an element of Sandy Barber where, you know, we've heard more than passing references about not there being the greatest communication there between Sandy Barber and the football program. But again, she stepped in at a time when they were, you know, the priorities may have been a little bit different. But now I think there's a greater alignment. Now I think they can focus on getting the football team with where it needs to be. And that may sound like a selfish thing for James Franklin, but it's really not because we've said it. If you want to have this 30-plus team uh, varsity athletic department, if your football program's not thriving, you are not going to be able to have that. And I think everybody understands that now. And uh, to to steal a a comment from – the Minnesota coach, I think everybody's kind of rowing the boat in the same direction. And I think he was speaking to that alignment a little bit. Well, you know, he said he's very appreciative of all the people that he's worked with, but you can see that I think there is a, a better working relationship now or a more effective working relationship now with the university brass. It seems like there's a, a new level of satisfaction that James Franklin is kind of expressing. I don't think he's a guy who's ever satisfied. That's kind of how it works for people in this profession who reach this level. They're never satisfied on a daily basis. But in terms of where he is, sitting in the seat, uh, being the leader of this program, it, se- it seems like there's a different level of satisfaction in 2023 right now. And Daniel, when it comes to on the field uh, you know, activities that we're monitoring this preseason, Quarterback battles come with a lot of drama uh, uh, across college football. We don't have that here because it feels like a foregone conclusion. Number 15, Drew Aller is going to be the starter, and, and number nine, Bo Prabula is going to be the backup. But we haven't heard that from the coaching staff. We've seen these guys out of camp, and uh, you wrote about that battle and, and kind of the feedback we got on Sunday about what's going on with Bo, what's going on with Drew. And there was a third quarterback name that James Franklin emphatically tossed in that we've also got to get to here on the show. Yeah, I think when you talk about the quarterback battle and the the lack of drama um, around it, I think you know, it does have something to do with our perception of how things will go um, and how we've thought things will go You know, for almost more than a year at this point uh, when we've gotten to this point. But I also think that it has to do with the personalities um, of Drew Aller and Bo Prabula. Um, I think that you know because they came in together, uh, they knew what the situation was. You know, they knew what was ahead of them with Sean Clifford for another year. Um, I think that they were able to build a, a good relationship and a good bond. And both of them said that the competition is good. You know, they like being around each other. Um, you know, the absence of Sean Clifford has given both of them opportunities to take on leadership roles. Um, so I think that where things stand right now with that, I think that, uh, you know, a quarterback situation or quarterback competition, sometimes it can go toxic uh, in certain environments. But it seems like that you know this isn't necessarily you know, the the place where that can happen 
um, this year. And I think a lot of it has to do with those two quarterbacks. Um, the one thing that James Franklin harped on uh, when talking about the two of them is that it's very obvious that they're in their second year, that you can see the strides that they've made since they arrived as early enrollees in January 2022. Um, there has been real growth and real development uh, from them when it comes to you know running the offense, being in the meeting rooms, you know, physically on the field. Uh, that was something that came up a lot where they're, you know, a little bit bigger, stronger, leaner, faster, um, that they've really taken to the offseason work with Chuck Losey. Um, So I, I think that, you know, what James Franklin and Mike Yersich both said is that the development is there. Um, you know, they don't have a timetable for when they're going to make this decision out in Indianapolis. James Franklin said the sooner the better. Uh, which I tend to agree with when it comes to a quarterback. Um, at the same time, though, uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if they you know, try to keep things under wraps for um, a little bit longer. Uh, and then to what you mentioned, Tyler, uh, the third quarterback who came up, uh, you know, Jackson Smolik came up unprompted. Um, you know, James Franklin was asked early in uh, the news conference if if there was a, a surprise to him or, you know, something that when he got home that he really wanted to talk about that he wasn't expecting. And, you know, he said that when he answered the question first, he you know didn't really have one, you know, he couldn't really think of one. Uh, but then when he was asked about the quarterbacks in the middle of his answer about Perbula and Aller, uh, he pivoted in, in the middle for a little bit about Jackson Smolik and just kind of, you know, how impressed he's been the strides that Smolik has made since he got here in January as an early enrollee um, and Yersic expanded on it a little bit too, that, um, you know, they can, that when Smolik is on the field that he really understands, you know, what he's, what he's doing. He has good spatial awareness. Um, you know, he got compared to a point guard and just kind of having really good feel uh, when he's back there. Both Franklin and Yersic said that he has a little bit of work to do when it comes to being in the meeting room uh, and developing on, on the mental side uh, and you know, doing the the classroom part of it, but when he gets onto the field, he's able he's still able to you know bring some of those concepts over and you know have the knack and the feel to be able to make things happen um, you know out there. So you know, Smolik is I think you laid it out, Tyler. He's going to travel to every game this year. You know he's going to be you know couple couple heartbeats away as that number three quarterback. You know as the true freshman who was committed to Tulane. Uh, you know, basically a year ago at this point. So um, and I think that's a good development for Penn State um, to be able to have depth in that room, to you know be able to have some confidence uh, in everybody out there to be able to go out there. So I think that if all goes well, you know, Smolik is going to redshirt this year. Maybe he'll get some, you know, cameos here and there like Christian Veyu did as the number three a year ago. Um, but the early you know, early feedback on Smolik, I think has been really good. And I think that's a boost for that quarterback room at this juncture. And just a quick reminder on his recruiting journey to Penn state. He was uh, injured as a junior didn't really get a lot of tape out there. Ends up getting a commitment uh, to Tulane uh, during the off season prior to his senior year. Gets a last second invitation to the elite 11 finals, which kind of changes the complexion of everything. He goes out there shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of power five passers, looks the part, 
ends up getting a Penn State offer via a camp visit. And just about a week after that, flipped from Tulane to Penn State. There were other Power 5 programs circling, though. He felt comfortable making the move from Iowa uh, to Happy Valley. Did that in January, and it sounded like from what we heard from the staff coming out of the spring that he really, through taking his lumps against a very good defense this spring, was able to, to show that maturity, was able to come out the other side as an accountable and developing backup quarterback. And James Franklin has said repeatedly, you need three quarterbacks so you feel like you can get into games, two starter levels, but a third guy who's right there and ready. It sounds like they're working in that direction with Smolik. And whoever is quarterback, they're going to have fun throwing at number 84 this season. Theo Johnson, one of the bigger targets on this team, figuratively, literally. And we got a little bit more to his story from you, Mark Brennan. And this is kind of the cool thing about Media Day. We talk so much about the X's and the O's and who's going to catch all the passes and make all the tackles. But these guys are young men living lives beyond football facilities and Theo Johnson acquired American citizenship this offseason, and that's a big step for reasons that are beyond the surface. Yeah, that's a cool story. I did want to circle back to, to what Daniel had mentioned when the question was asked to Franklin, is there anything you go home and, and talk about? You know, I'm just thinking of, of Franklin working from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. <laughs> and then driving home with Frank Leonard, and Frank, Frank lives above his garage, and then going into the house and saying <laughs> – Hey, Fumi, you should see Jackson Smolik. He's really, I mean, wh wh where was that? I get where the question was coming from, but I just thought that, well, you know, it, it was kind of odd. And that wasn't Daniel. It was somebody else who asked that question that way. And I was just kind of thinking. But in all seriousness, the, yeah, the story with Theo, you know, I got a little bit of a heads up from somebody about how there could be an NIL aspect uh, to him gaining American citizenship. And I kind of knew this, but but I didn't know it. Uh, I didn't know all the details and he was able to explain it to me. Um, you know, so key, uh, Theo is from Windsor, Ontario, Canadian citizen, uh, but his dad's American. So apparently if, if you're not an American citizen, you get a student visa and a student visa, long story short, uh, there are work restrictions that prevent you from earning money on the NIL front which seems kind of odd to me, but, 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 you know, it, it kind of stinks for Canadian folks. Well, Theo wasn't really sure, you know, how to go about getting American citizenship. It turns out his older brother, Dominic, and this was like a, a crazy rabbit hole who played basketball and football at the university of Buffalo basketball initially under Nate Oates, who's now the coach at Alabama to, you know, for, for better or worse, he's a really good coach, but he's been, you know, there's been some crazy things going on down there. But he served as a GA down there. And then he went to get a job in the real world. And the job required him getting American citizenship. And he realized that it was very easy to do because his dad was, because uh, their dad is American. And all they had to do was fill out forms and stuff. Uh, so it wasn't you didn't have to go through all the things that that somebody who didn't have an American dad would have to go through. So he tells Theo this and Theo gets it done. And now Theo's in a really nice position that he could start to capitalize on NIL uh, opportunities. And if you haven't met Theo, we have a video on our front page. I would just say, check it out. This guy will do well on NIL opportunities because he carries himself extremely well. Very smart guy. Uh, he you know, he just very personable. Uh, so he, he's going to do well, and he's a hell of a player too. And that's the thing that I hope we don't miss with this, with Theo. And I actually stole one of your paragraphs. I plagiarized one of your paragraphs, uh, Tyler, because we can do that since we, we work together. But what was it? He had five catches of 20-plus yards 
in the final however many games last year, all those touchdowns. I mean, when he was healthy, he was a hell of a player. And I think he projects as, you know, an elite tight end. And I think they're very lucky to have him along with Tyler Warren. But the other thing that he was able, that he told me was, uh, you know, we all know he missed spring practice uh, for medical reasons. You know, not sure exactly what it was, but he's, he said he's at 100% now. I think the fact that he was named an Iron Lion, one of the summer's top workout warriors, three of them, uh, I think speaks to that. Uh, but he talked about how being with the team but not being able to play allowed him to develop as a leader. And with Brenton Strange no longer in that room, that's very important. So a very neat story uh, about about a, a good kid and uh, somebody who I think is – I think a lot of the nation is sleeping on him. I know he's on the Mackey Award list, but there's probably 400 people on that list. Uh, but I think he's – keep an eye on Theo Johnson. I think a lot of people are sleeping on him. Yeah, we spent some time discussing him on the last episode of the podcast as well and just his ability to maybe be the favorite target uh, early on in the season potentially for these quarterbacks as the wide receiver uh, course starts to take shape and guys get some confidence and find their rhythm because we have a lot to learn about that group. And, and the biggest addition, at least by name, in that room was Dante Cephas. And Sunday presented our first opportunity to speak with him since he enrolled on campus Back in May, of course, one of the more coveted uh, wide receiver uh, wide receivers available in the transfer portal this past offseason. A couple of really productive seasons at Kent State, which is a group of five school. And then that leap to the Power Five competition is something we've discussed a lot here in the podcast. It's something that Mike Yersich and James Franklin both referenced on Sunday and saying, um, you know, it's going to take a little bit of a transitional period because he's had Power Five matchups, but he's had about four or five of them in a two-year period. Now he has a power five matchup every single day on the practice field against one of the top defensive secondaries and the top defensive units across the land. So there is a lot that he's not try trying to catch up with in terms of learning the offense and fitting in on the offense and, and picking it up with another quarterback. He's also trying to challenge himself physically, mentally, and athletically going up against uh, the, the cornerbacks and safeties and everything else that Manny Diaz can throw your way on the practice field. So a lot moving, but here's a kind of a defining comment i guess from mike yersich he said with all that going on he won't blink he said they've figured that out about him he brought some pedigree to campus they can see he's played in those big games you're hearing this from other players as well we got to look at the practice field a few hours after we heard from cephas and we heard about cephas and uh, he's still working his way up it, it's kind of a i would say a collective uh group that that is you know eight guys james franklin mentioned competing for those six spots maybe there's even more than eight guys Dante Cephas is surely one of them. He's someone that we will be watching in the coming weeks to see if he ascends to a starting position. Right now, still looking at Harrison Wallace. You're looking at Keandre Lambert-Smith. Amari Evans finished on a high note in the spring. He's carried that into the summer. So there is competition in place. Mainstays like uh, or program uh, returners like Malik Mega, Liam Clifford, trying to challenge themselves. You've got a bunch of young players, but I think we all believe Dante Cephas is going to be a factor come September 2nd. It just we're trying to see how much of a factor, Daniel. And I think that's the big question here at, at wide receiver. Uh, beyond maybe Keandre Lambert-Smith, perhaps Harrison Wallace, when we get in early September, are we going to see guys go 25, 30-plus snaps on a regular basis? Or are we going to see kind of a sprinkling, smattering of snaps across a larger group? That's one of the questions we have. But in hearing from Cephas, he's a guy that sounds like he feels like he, uh, the, the strength and conditioning uh, has already made a major impact on him. We knew that was going to be important. It's kind of been an, an, an eye-opening experience, I think, for him in that way. He's added some some quality pounds. He's getting faster. Um, and this is just such a, I don't want to call it make or break, but it can really elevate the ceiling of this offensive attack 
if you're getting a guy who's going to be a quality addition and a guy who's going to be a component versus someone who can really push to be a alpha target in your offensive attack. Dante Cephas is definitely an, an X factor when you look at the offense and, and what he's capable of doing um, across the season. If, if he is able to elevate uh, the Penn State passing game, if he is able to be a very reliable target for Drew Aller uh, or Bo Prubula, uh, I think that can really do wonders for what Mike Yersich is trying to do, You know how they want to run this offense. Right now, it looks like everything is really going to run through those running backs uh, when you talk about you know, the Penn State offense with Nick Singleton and Katron Allen and Trey Potts, you know, proven commodities behind a you know, first-year starter at quarterback. But I think that when you talk about the passing game, Cephas has shown that he can be consistent uh, in the past. That happening, it's Mac competition, so there is that really big leap. But you, know, you look at it, and Andre Lambert-Smith, wasn't really consistent last year. You know, Harrison Wallace wasn't consistent last year. You know, there is, they do need someone to step up and be a really steady presence. And I think Dante Sivas has done that before at Kent State. And if he can do that here, it might not be at that same level of production where I think he caught 82 balls two years ago. Um, but if he can, you know, if he can improve maybe on what Mitchell Tinsley did last year uh, in that wide receiver spot, um, I think that that could be really big for Penn State. I am curious to see what he looks like on the field you know, against Power 5 competition, against Big Ten competition. And I did ask him about the, the difference in strength and conditioning because I think that's something that you know, with all these transfers coming into new programs, I think that and asking them about the differences between Penn State and where they were before, you know, I think the resources and the strength programs is something that has come up a couple times. So you know, he said that being at Penn State, you know, he really feels like he took to that work this summer. You know, he does feel stronger, faster, uh, and it's translated over to over to the field for him. So I thought that he seemed really excited about this opportunity to be at Penn State. You know, he was a Pittsburgh guy. He was teammates with Daquan Hardy at, at Penn Hills. He said that it's almost like being back in back in high school with him and, and Hardy on the same field together. Uh, and he said that he's just really looking forward to having, you know, to being out on the field in a Penn State uniform on September 2nd against West Virginia. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a lot of people watching who are excited to see him out there, what he's able to do. And if he does have this ceiling as a you know potential you know, alpha wide receiver, a number one or a one A one B, I think that really really does wonders for for Penn State. But like you laid out, you know, James Franklin said there's eight or nine guys that are going to be competing for snaps. You have a lot of different types of wide receivers. Um, you know who knows how soon it's going to take for that to shake out for us. And and something we heard from Drew Aller about Cephas was he you know, he's not the loudest guy in the room, and, and we knew that about Cephas, but outstanding work ethic. And I think that's something that resonated in other conversations, too. Cephas hit the ground running when he got to campus, and that's important for anyone relocating and jumping into a Power 5 level spot. Also thought it was interesting that Drew pointed out the catch radius that, that Cephas brings to campus. You know, six foot, 185 pounds or so. 
wouldn't really jump off the pages as a guy who's going to have that kind of a range. But when his quarterback's bringing it up, well, you listen to that. And while there was a lot of positive news and, and, and you've got momentum brewing and optimism building about some of these new additions, we did have a negative report on Sunday to pass along confirmation that defensive end Smith Vilbert will miss the 2023 season. Of course, he missed the 2022 regular season uh, with on, for undisclosed reasons. He was practicing along the way as a scouting participant, um, resurfaced on the field for the Rose Bowl after James Franklin. Franklin confirmed he was uh, eligible to get back in games with them again. We don't know why he was absent last year. We don't know the specifics here, but we do know this is injury related now. And Smith Filbert's a guy who, uh, as that redshirt senior, you wonder if this is the end of the road for his Nittany Lions uh, career. He's got eligibility left. Um, he can use that. He's a guy that we have always pointed to since he showed up on campus five years ago as a big framed, high potential defensive lineman who focused on basketball. Uh, one of uh, you know in New Jersey for much of his early prep career, then blew up on the football scene. We may not get to see it come to fruition here at Penn State, Mark. But as we've discussed at defensive end, beyond those big three of Deny Dennis Sutton, Adiza Isaac, and Trap Robinson, you've got viable depth options. Starting with the mean Vanover, working its way down to Zariah Fisher, who we continue to hear th good things about as a redshirt junior coming off of an injury last spring. But unfortunately, your heart goes out to a guy like Smith Vilbert, who wanted to be with this program. A lot of guys facing a similar circumstance last year maybe would have folded up and, and left town. He stuck it out on the developmental squad and James Franklin along the way, while noting that he was not going to be playing in games, said this guy, you know, he's invested. And so to see it end up like this before he can get back on the field for some regular season action, it's a shame. Unfortunately, we run into stuff like this each August. But when you're dealing with a guy toward the end of his college career with time dwindling, it hits a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, we, we've seen him around the program, you know, even when he wasn't playing and, you know, it looked like he was trying to be a good team player. You know, it's it's amazing. We go back to that Outback Bowl, was it? And, uh, yeah. you know, the, the guy just looked like an absolute beast. And I'm going to name drop you guys. The, our old time fans will remember this, but uh, the Rose Bowl after the '94 season, Ambrose Fletcher had a like a breakout performance as a kick returner. It was unbelievable, and everybody thought he was kind of like the next big thing. And you know that was kind of the 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 the, the upper level for Ambrose Fletcher. And it, it's tough to see it happen to a kid like this. So wish him nothing uh, but the best of luck. Obviously a very difficult situation for him, but I will say this just in keeping my ear to the ground, as much talk as there is about the big three at defensive end, I think they are very, very excited about Amin Vanover and Zariah yes. Fisher. We had a question last week about Zariah Fisher, and again, you know, trying to keep my ear to the ground, uh, I, I think they are very high on, on what both of those guys can bring to the table. So I think you're going to see a defensive end group that even with this loss, and again, I don't want to, you know, downplay the loss because obviously it's got to be tough for the kid and I feel yeah. bad for him, but I think that position is in good hands. Absolutely. And then we have a lot more of coverage and takeaways at lines, 247.com, some position specific stuff, some, some overall stuff from Manny Diaz and Mike Yersich and James Franklin, just that we can't pack into a five hour podcast here. Uh, but, but Daniel, I, I did want to circle back to another bit of an injury update here. And, and Jay Wan Sider uh, provided this one and confirming that London Montgomery, the freshman running back is at 100%. Uh, we, we assume that was the case because he wouldn't be out practicing probably if Penn state wasn't going to clear him, but again, just a year, maybe less than a full year right now because I think it was mid-August, but removed 
from the torn ACL that he suffered in preseason action last year, heading into his high school senior season. I'm curious what you may have heard from Slater on that. And, and, and if you have anything else to share from that running back room where it's pretty cut and dry to those top two are, but now there's a little bit of intrigue. We've had some reporting about it on the on lines 247com but what freshman Cam Wallace might be able to accomplish with a really interesting skill set. When you got Trey Potts also in town as a minute, as a veteran in the big 10, there's a bit of a competition brewing beyond those top two, and, and London Montgomery's going to assert himself to have a chance to do that in the coming months. I think it makes the running back room a lot more interesting for Jaywan Sider. I think that the perception uh, on signing day back in December was that London Montgomery will be a non-factor because coming off the injury, Cam Wallace needs to go through, needs to do a lot of work in the strength program before he can potentially contribute. So I think that when you talked about Penn State adding Trey Potts through the transfer portal in the spring, you kind of looked at it as, okay, they're set with Singleton, Allen, and Potts. And then, you know, if you got anything from the other two guys, that would just be gravy uh, at this point. But I think the fact that London Montgomery is out there practicing, that's very valuable for him. Uh, to you know, be able to get these reps, get this experience now, you know, go through this development, you know, potentially get his first taste of college action, depending on how some of these games go uh, over the course of the season. Um, and with Cam Wallace, the fact that he's really taken to you know, the strength program, I think bodes really well for him and his physical development and being able to hold up against Big Ten play. I think that he gives them a you know, pretty unique weapon um, with what he's able to do and his skill set. You know, I asked Jaywan Sider about that uh, and kind of the, you know, not necessarily the, the perception of him not necessarily being a contributor right away because of that needed physical development. Um, and Sider just said that just was kind of like, you know, if you're a football player, you're a football player. You know, we can see that. And that's something that can really help you when it gets onto the field. And, you know, guys get overlooked for whatever reason. You know, Cam Wallace was down there in the middle of SEC, ACC country. Um, and then Penn State was able to swoop in and get him at the end. Um, you know, I think that they're excited about what he's able to do. Um, I think that they're, they've been impressed with how he's come along. And so I think that it just makes that running back room a little bit more interesting this year. Um, you know, they really had to rebuild the depth in it after what they lost over the course of last season. Uh, through the transfer portal. So, and I think that they've really done that. So I think that Penn State is in you know, a good position at running back. Um, you know, it's, you hope for the players and you know that Jalen Sider is hoping that they get a similar performance from Nick Singleton and Katron Allen in terms of durability this year. Yeah, running back, that isn't always a guarantee. But I think that if you look at where they are this August compared to where they were, in November last year compared to where they were in August a year ago. Um, I think that the Penn State running back room is in really good shape. And I think that having these two young running backs, you know, able to push perhaps, I think will help even more. You made a great point on perception versus reality in that running back room because I think there was a lot of people, it's time to recalibrate a little bit because they saw the, the Singleton-Allen class come in in 2022 and then they looked ahead to that 2024 running back class and we saw both of those guys on campus this summer and Corey Smith out of Wisconsin and Quentin Martin, uh, the prize prospect here in Pennsylvania. And people said, wow, those are two really, really strong duos that Slater's bringing in. But is there a bit of a gap year in between? Are, are, are they grabbing a guy 
who's going to even be able to be an on-field factor because of this injury? Is Cam Wallace actually a power five running back or should he end up at defensive back or wide receiver? And here we are getting early answers on the subject. These guys are only four practices into their Penn State career, but we didn't think that London Montgomery would be able to get any practices maybe logged this month or, or maybe this autumn uh, coming out of that injury. And with Cam Wallace, everything – we I, I used the phrase last episode, I'll apply it again. He's been an ahead-of-schedule kind of prospect since the day he showed up on campus, and that's why there's a feeling that they may have stolen a, a very, very good running back out of uh, fertile territory there in the south. And I'll mention it again. He is from Georgia, and that's the middle of SEC territory, but it's a big state, and some of those towns get lost. He's from a very rural, rural area, and that contributed a little bit to, to, to him maybe slipping past some of those eyes down there. Uh, Mark, we, we, we covered so much territory. I think one thing I wanted to finish off with was Manny Diaz and, and the conversation, just how different it is um, at linebacker. I mean, you could talk about the depth at safety and, and cornerback too, but Manny Diaz was last August saying, we know we have a question mark at linebacker. These guys know it. They hear it. We got to own it. We got to figure it out. Now the question is, how are they going to keep guys off the field at linebacker because of what they've got brewing from the returned experience from the freshmen? We heard good things from Manny Diaz about all three of those freshman linebackers. Tony Rojas progressing ahead of the others based on the, the spring experience and, and what he's doing right now. But Tamir Robinson has fit in well at the mic position. You've got Kavion Keys showing off his athleticism. He's already about 20 pounds heavier than where he was as a high school senior in Virginia last year. And so Manny Diaz, uh, you know, very confident it would sound like about what they're going to end up working with at linebacker although we all wonder you know how is that mixing and matching going to turn out come september october november yeah well he should be i mean when you start with uh you know curtis jacobs and abdul carter uh you know that that's a pretty good starting point and another you know another guy just keeping ear to the ground a lot of buzz about kobe king a lot of buzz about kobe king and I, I think that's a guy that I've not talked enough about, that that people haven't talked enough about. I know we were all focused on Rojas, and we, we should be, because I think he's going to be a guy that even if he doesn't make a gigantic impact in the linebacker core, is going to be one of your main special teams guys. I think he's going to be he's going to be on the field doing something. Yeah, you have Tyler Elston coming back. I think everybody's sleeping on Dom DeLuca. And, uh, you know, Wiley, Robinson, you know, we're, um, who am I missing? I, I don't think I'm missing anybody, but it's like, yeah, you have a, yeah, a keys again, another guy that people are talking about. So you went from having a group last year that there were all these question marks about to, to now it's just looking like an absolute strength. But I think the key is obviously, and I'm starting with Curtis Jacobs just because I don't think he's the best linebacker they have. But I think his versatility allows them to do other things with Abdul Carter. You know, he can play wherever they need him. Uh, Abdul Carter, I think, is going to be a box linebacker and, gonna, and is going to crack heads and, and, do, and do what he does. Uh, but I think from a leadership perspective, uh, you really see, you know, the big dog stepping up, Curtis Jacobs. So I think it's a great group. And I think I mentioned this last time. They are so blessed to have Manny Diaz back for another year. I think all these players, however long that Manny is here, these players just have to soak it up and soak it up. And I also think he's the perfect guy to coach Abdul Carter. I've mentioned it before, uh, but but he said it. Uh, he, he had another really good comment. And again, I'm paraphrasing here. It's just really cool to listen to him uh, when he's talking about Abdul Carter. He just had. He said something along the lines of Abdul just has to do things the way he normally does them 
and if he does that, he's going to be better than everybody else. It's like he he can package these things and, and tell them to you just in a certain way. So yeah, that's an absolutely that's going to be a monster group for him. Mark, I think the phrasing that that Benny Diaz used and it stuck out to me. He said, "If Abdul does the basic things the right, right way, they they look extraordinary to other people." And and that's why he's Benny you know, Diaz because he can say it that way, and <laughs> I I can't. But you you get what I'm saying, right? And those are those are the kind of descriptions that we don't hear on a regular basis here covering Penn State. You hear it about certain types of guys like a Saquon Barkley. It's certainly and and a Micah Parsons and. Now starting to hear that thrown around about a guy who's, you know, what got got six, seven starts under his belt as a Penn State Nittany Lion. Um, we were out of the practice field, as I mentioned, on Sunday evening. And, and first and foremost, I got to give Penn State football program credit because in the range, I don't know if they drilled this over and over again, but we got caught in a downpour out there on the field. We were out, out observing maybe the first three or four or five minutes of practice on the outdoor fields. Then the, the horn goes off. Everyone's all the players and coaches are sprinting in there. The media is doing its best to work its way inside the Haluba Hall. And it just resumes and, and, and it gets off without a hitch. I got to give them credit for that because I, I was wondering what kind of a scramble we were going to encounter in Haluba Hall. And they were right back with drill work. But before we had that change of pace, the first thing that stood out to me, at least, was a strong day overall for the kickers. And, and we haven't talked about special teams competition a ton here on the podcast early on in preseason camp. Uh, we did get some good feedback from Stacy Collins, the special teams coordinator, on some of those uh, subjects on Sunday. A lot of that on the site. But Alex Falcons, who came to town a- after a uh, record-setting co- career with Columbia in the Ivy League, uh, he's competing against Sanders Sahadak, who was 24-7 sports top overall kicker prospect a few cycles ago in 2020, now a redshirt sophomore on scholarship, and, and we're waiting to see if he can claim this job. I just want to say the, both these guys dealing with the rain. We had James Franklin pouring a full Gatorade bottles of, of water on top of these footballs before Sadak was trying to kick it on a couple occasions. Really strong showing. Not only was it dealing with Mother Nature, but they were dealing with the presence of probably three dozen or so media members. Uh, these are the kind of things I think is important to do to your kickers. You want to get in their head. You want to see how they react to different situations like this. And Sahadak, by my count, uh, he was pretty consistent from, from beyond 40, even in 45 close to 50-yard range in that kind of a setting. A little bit shorter for Falcons, but he handled his business. And they had – this is another thing that James Franklin said the program is benefiting from on special teams. They have enough bodies now, enough accountable depth, guys who know what they're doing on the practice field, where they have two field goal units, full field goal units, side-by-side on the same practice field going one-by-one-by-one. And I just wanted to start there, guys. Uh, we, we keep a lot of our uh, of, of our commentary on these practices to our VIP subscribers through our notebooks at lions247.com. So if you missed it Sunday night, it's there waiting for you. But I thought that was a really positive thing that I didn't want to pass over because there's so many other items to get to. But they got to be able to keep the football through the uprights if they want to go be a college football playoff championship contender. Yeah, I, I think that being able to utilize that depth and be able to have the two field goal units out there at once, I, I think that's pretty underrated because at this time of year, you know, every minute, every rep is valuable. You know, we know how they have these per, these practices broken down into all these different segments, um, and you really can't waste any time. You can't afford to waste any time. So, you know, being able to you know basically double the amount of field goal reps that you're able to get at once, um, I think is a really good benefit. Um, I am really curious to see how this competition really shakes out um, at kicker. You know, I think that we talked about it a little bit last year where the ball really does jump off of Sanders Hadak's foot, um, that he is really able to launch it uh, from pretty much anywhere. You know, there is a reason why 
you know, he was the the long distance kicker last year, even though I think he only got one or two chances to show that off. Um, but you know, I'm I'm curious to see how it goes. Um, you know, potentially Saturday, maybe you guys will finally get a look at the punters uh, because that's a battle that has really happened. I think more behind the scenes that never happens during the you know, sessions we get to see. Um, but you know, there's a lot a lot of moving parts right now. You know, I think that Stacy Collins likes the competition that they have. Um, you know, I think I think part of it speaks to the special teams culture that James Franklin has developed uh, with the guys who are willing to you know be on those teams. The freshmen embracing the opportunity to contribute, um, you know, on a coverage team or a return team. I think Stacy Collins brought up KJ Winston specifically last year as a guy who, at the beginning of the year, you know, was kind of a you know, he was trying to find his way, trying to look for a, a way onto the field. And then by the end of the season, I think Colin said he was on three different units. So you know, it'll be interesting to see how exactly this shakes out, which freshmen use this as their avenue. Um, but I think that Stacy Collins has a lot of different pieces to work with. And when you're talking about even beyond kickers, punters, long snappers, when you're talking about, you know, the bullets uh, on the coverage team, you know, kickoff returners, punt returners. Uh, there's a lot for him to work with, and there's a lot I think that really does need to be decided uh, before we get to September 2nd against West Virginia. You mentioned how the freshmen could could come through big for that special teams unit as they're looking for for more full time work on the offensive and defensive side of things. And we have some VIP notes up on on members of this freshman class. We'll continue to do that as we have our preseason progress reports for our VIP subscribers over at lions247.com. Our huge deal that we had at the start of preseason camp, 75% is off. Uh, it's done, but we've got 30% savings available for new subscribers right now on an annual level. Additionally, $1 for one month. So if you do that right now, that'll take you through the first game. You'll have a good sense of how we do things, and I think you'll be ready to make a more longer-term commitment. But those are two options on the table. Um, I wanted to finish off this podcast with a reach into our mailbag, which is exclusively available for our Lions 24-7 subscribers at lions 24 we have a, a thread pinned on top of our Lions Pride message board that, that lays out how you can drop it. It's not complicated. Throw your question or topic, and we've got a good one here to, to finish off with. Uh, guys, cornerback uh, is a recent example. If I can get it up on the uh, on the screen. Uh, oh, it's it's a scrolling here. Let me. There we go. It's, it's scrolling on the bottom. You can see it. Cornerback is a recent example of a room that went from a liability to a strength thanks to Terry Smith. What position group do you think is now next to go from a liability to a reliable strength? And if you're following at home on YouTube, I accidentally made it the, the scroller on the bottom instead of a graphic that pops up. And that's why I was confused for a second. I think you can go in a few directions here, guys. And Mark, we'll begin with you. You've covered Terry Smith throughout his entire tenure here with Penn State and done phenomenal work with that cornerback unit. It feels like every year now we're talking about the depth there recently. And where do you look across the roster and maybe see something similar brewing? I cover Terry Smith as a player. I didn't want to mention it, man. I try to avoid those kind of statements. But you met like, 35 years on the beat. You see a lot of stuff. 88 through 991. He was, I'll tell you what, Terry was a hell of a player. He was overshadowed by Bobby Ingram and OJ McDuffie, but he was tremendous as a receiver. But no, I mean, I, I listen, I'll go to another uh, Penn State grad on the staff, Dion Barnes. Uh, we're talking about DN, 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 DN. I'm getting higher and higher on this D tackle group. I am. I mean, I went into the off season thinking they had a lot of work to do. And I look at the way some of these guys have remade their bodies. And I'm going to start with Akeem Beeman. 
you know, they have him listed up at 284 now. You know, he's a guy who they were on for years to put on weight. And I, I think he has an opportunity to be an All-American type player. I really do. I mean, I think he's athletic. He's tough from, uh, you know, what we're hearing, really emerging as a leader an energy guy in that room. And I think he's going to be kind of the straw that stirs the drink of that group. Uh, every time I talk about the D tackles, I miss somebody. So I am not going to do it this time. Last time it was Zane Durant, similar player to Beeman, Devon Ellis, who I think is underrated as a player and as a leader. Kaziah Izzard coming back uh, from, from being banged up. Jordan Vandenberg, Another guy who was one of the Iron Lions, uh, Caleb Artis, who is a the, you know we're talking about who's the big guy that that's going to help replace PJ Mustafer. I'm not saying he's going to replace PJ Mustafer, but if they need some real size, uh, that's one of the guys for you. And uh, Townley, you know, moving him over from defensive end. Did I get everybody? Did I miss somebody? I'm hoping uh, if, you know I'll, I'll throw out Alonzo Ford, although I think he might have some trouble cracking that rotation uh, just until he gets to, to where he needs to be physically. But I went into the offseason, you know, thinking they're losing P.J. Mustafer. They took some criticism from James Franklin after that Michigan game for not being uh, maybe a, a, as big as they need to be. And I just think you see guys, they're, they're, they're bigger bodies, they're stronger, and I think there's a lot of athleticism. So I'm going with D-tackle and tell me who I missed and I'll, 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 I'll own it. Ty Blanding is a freshman, probably not going to factor in on right. Saturday. So I think that we can excuse that one. But, but it nice helped job. Out a, a list here. So, I mean, as you can <laughs> that, see, that, that, you, you probably couldn't help. tell. I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought up Townley. Um, he's a guy I'm going to have a little bit more up on the site for our VIP subscribers here in the next day or two. Um, but there are, is certainly momentum, it sounds like, working in the direction of him being uh, maybe game ready defensive tackle this year. And, and I know you'd say, okay, well, it's a former blue chip. He's in year three. You'd think he's game ready. Well, he's at a different position. And he wasn't with this program in December. You know, when they're getting ready, getting all those really important practices loaded up on the young players in December, getting ready for the Rose Bowl, he's communicating with other coaching staffs, lingering in the transfer portal, trying to figure out what his next move is. He doesn't rejoin the team until January. So he's playing catch up from a physical perspective. A fundamental perspective while also working into a new position so uh, spring was an important period for him this is another one and just getting some feedback and, and again there'll be more on the site on this but townley is a name to know at defensive tackle and he's behind a lot of those names you mentioned but he could be a factor there daniel where do you land on this i think that there's a, a lot of directions that we can go and i think a lot of position groups kind of to you know didn't take a significant uh, of a leap as the cornerback room last season but um, you know, they're already kind of arrived as non-liabilities. So I'm going to go with one that I think could make this time next year we could be talking about as a good strength. And I'm going to look at the wide receiver room. Um, I think that when you look at what Penn State has in terms of the younger talent there, um, I think that there really is the potential for Marcus Hagans to develop some dangerous, consistent, reliable Big Ten wide receivers. Now you look at the physical development of guys like Harrison Wallace III and Omari Evans. You know, I think that they're both really physically impressive at this stages in their career. You know, Wallace is a third-year guy. Evans is a second-year guy. So they're still young. 
you know, there's still some growing to do some development, but, you know, physically, you know, the eye test, I'm really impressed with what we've seen. You know, Caden Saunders is a former top 100 recruit. He's really had to redo his body and looking at him going through some of these drills, he just looks very, very twitched up. Um, and that competition in the slot, I think could be really, really intriguing uh, with the number of guys that could make impacts there. You know, and then you look at, you know, older guys, Keandre Lambert Smith, um, you know, can he be consistent? Um, you know, will having a new voice in his ear like Marcus Hagens help him carry over that performance from the end of last season uh, through this season? You know, what can Dante Cephas do this year? Um, and then you're just looking at kind of that that mess of younger guys, all of the redshirt freshmen, Tyler Johnson, Christian Driver, Anthony Ivey, uh, you know, Liam Clifford is a redshirt sophomore. Malik McLean is in there. I think that there's so many guys, you know, James Franklin said eight or nine um, that if Marcus Hagans, you know, lives up to his reputation as a coach uh, and his ability to develop, I think at this point next year, we could be talking about this wide receiver group as that, that true too deep uh, that James Franklin has been looking for, for these past couple of years. So I'm curious to see what the development looks like, you know, where these players are in December uh, versus now. But I think that there's enough pieces there that you, know, you can kind of, you know, shake it up, throw it out there and find some combination that get that helps to get you where you want to go. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're all using projection here and trying to figure out where rooms are trending. And, and maybe you're taking a little bit more of a risk picking receiver because there are so many oh, yeah. unknown commodities. I'm going to play it a little safer um, and go offensive line. But before I go with the offensive line, which I feel like is a pretty obvious answer to this question, I got to mention the quarterback room. I mean, we're not far removed from a very unprepared for power five football. Really not too much fault of the staff. I can't put a lot of this on the staff. It just is what it is as a prospect. Sometimes Taquan Rob Roberson should not be leading that offense on the road in Kinnick stadium against Iowa. When Sean Clifford goes down, you have to have a different viable option and you have to have someone after those first couple of series that you say, okay, we got to turn to this guy. Um, so they had Christian Veyer at that point, uh, a year one player. But I think you've seen the quarterback room. And remember, that's coming off an offseason in which you had guys who didn't make an impact on the program leave, like Michael Johnson Jr., like Micah Bowens. These were scholarship quarterbacks who came to your campus, enrolled, and we really just never heard about them again, and they left pretty quickly. Uh, Will Levis came to town as a backup and hit the door. Uh, same deal with Christian Veyer. And I think right now we're talking about these two quarterbacks that they're high on. One's the top quarterback in the country uh, coming out of the, the 2022 class. And the other is Bo Perbula, uh, who they've liked going back to his sophomore season. And, and you hear a lot of good things about him. But what you like is Jackson Smolik now getting enough credibility to, to hear James Franklin go on a microphone like that. Did we ever hear James Franklin come close to, to labeling Taquan Roberson in any kind of a manner the way he laid it out about Jackson Smolik? Again, I'm not trying to pile on, on Taquan Roberson, but that was your backup quarterback that, that year. We're talking about a number three quarterback getting that kind of effusive praise about his progress in year one. That's a good sign. And then you've got uh, you've got uh, Ethan Grunkemeyer, who, if you have followed our ratings at twenty four seven Sports, he's one of the major risers in the in the industry at the quarterback spot. He's into the top two hundred now from three star status. He was one of the top performers at the Elite Eleven Finals. And oh, by the way. He's co-signed by Drew Aller's uh, trainer, uh, Brad Mendler, who you heard here on the podcast, breaking down the reasons why he thinks Ethan Grunkemeyer is an elite quarterback talent. So you never know what's going to happen with the transfer portal at the quarterback spot, but the way it's brewing right now, especially if you got number 15 rocking and rolling at quarterback and he lives up to some of those expectations, it doesn't have to fulfill them all as a sophomore, but if he shows you he is that guy, 
then I think the quarterback room, credit to Mike Yurcich, is in a much, much different situation than it was just a couple of years back coming out of COVID and, and dealing with 2021 season. But offensive line to me, I mean, last year we were saying if anything's going to hold back this team, it's going to be the offensive line. Um, and, and I feel like that's been the common theme for a few years. If, if, if they're going to beat Ohio State, they've got to have the offensive line show up to either be able to run the clock out at the end or to pound the, to, to pound the defense over the course of the game. Same thing versus Michigan. And now those questions are starting to dissipate a little bit. And, and, and I just think that what's really telling of it, guys, is you've got these four blue-chip freshmen that we're not talking about needing to play. They might play. They might be involved if, if, if depth uh, requires it or if injuries require it. But a few years ago, these guys get to campus. You don't have the time to, to let them figure things out in the practice field. You probably got to force the issue, get them involved, whether they're fully ready or not. And then you're going to have players like a Caden Wallace or a Drew Shelton, a Vega Ioane or a J.B. Nelson. From what we've heard about these guys and seen about them, they're starters at different spots across the Big Ten Conference. These are power five starting level offensive linemen. They're going to be watching a lot of football this season if guys are healthy because not all these guys can be on the field at the same time. So I would say just in my experience covering this team starting in 2017 to where we are in 2023, it has been a completely uh, completely faster than I imagined in just about the last 12 months or so. But it is a completely different narrative about the offensive line. It's legitimate. They're going to have to go through it and do it for a second season. But in my opinion, this is is this the 180 kind of turn that, that you'd love to see from a position room. And Phil Troutwine may have taken him some time, but I think that they've gotten there, and I think we're going to see the results again come football season. Um, so that's where I am on it. Gentlemen, I appreciate your perspective. We had a jam-packed show today, starting off with Josh Payton, and we're all back out at Penn State's facilities on Thursday. We'll have a chance to hear from James Franklin once again, some players, we think of coaches well, um, coming off of the practice field. Saturday, Daniel referenced it. We're going to be out for an open practice. We have not seen one of these before. At least I have not seen one of these before covering Penn State. We're going to have access, uh, from what we understand, to an entire open practice. Um, it is related to uh, the, the NIL collective with Penn State, so there's going to be fans out there as well. We'll have more details on that with our second episode of the podcast, but should be a good opportunity for us uh, to share a lot of reporting at lines247.com. Guys, really appreciate the coverage and look forward to getting back on the field with you in a few days. Thanks, yeah, Tyler. I can't wait to see, to see the headline of this one. Gallon Brennan breakdown media day, right? <laughs> or, or could it be Josh Pate doing something? I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think we may want to go with Pate. Yeah, Josh Pate, born to be in the spotlight, I think. All right, guys, appreciate it. Daniel, Thanks, Mark, Tyler. talk to you both soon. Yep. Uh, again, we'll circle back to, to Josh Pate real quick. Thanks to him for his time. He's been pulled in a lot of different directions during the preseason. So uh, it's given us a half hour here on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Fantastic. Uh, kudos to Daniel Gallon and Mark Brennan for their coverage uh, throughout the start of preseason camp so far at Lions247.com. Go to the site. Check out what we've done so far. A lot more coming your way, including more VIP recruiting content from our friend Tyler Calvaruso. Stepping aside for now, I'm Tyler Donahue. You've been tuned in to the Lions 24-7 podcast.